You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. There were unexpected difficulties, said the dark gray blur. That blur sat in a pale blue cushioned chair, no more than a meter away from where Ingray herself sat, facing in an identical chair. Or apparently so, anyway. Ingray knew that if she reached much more than a meter past her knees, she would touch smooth, solid wall. The same to her left, where, apparently, the facilitator sat, bony frame draped in brown, gold, and purple silk, hair braided sleekly back, dark eyes expressionless, watching the conversation, listening. Only the beige walls behind and to the right of Ingray were really as they appeared. The table beside Ingray's chair with the gilded decanter of serbat and the delicate glass tray of tiny rose-petaled cakes was certainly real. The facilitator had invited her to try them. She had been too nervous to even consider eating one. Unexpected difficulties, continued the dark gray blur, that led to unanticipated expenses. We will require a larger payment than previously agreed. Anne Leckie is the author of the Imperial Ratch Trilogy, the Hugo Award-winning Ancillary Justice, the Hugo-nominated Ancillary Sword, and the Hugo-nominated Ancillary Mercery, and the Hugo-nominated Ancillary Mercy. Her new novel is A Provenance. Thank you for joining me, Anne. Thank you for having me. These are wonderful novels. This is full stop, straight ahead, uh, pure space opera. Could you set us up and give us an idea of what the Imperial Ratch is, how you created the, just the outlines of your universe? So uh, the, the Ratch, which is uh, peopled by the Ratchai, is uh, an expansionist, uh, basically a galactic empire. Uh, they are, at least up until the novels begin, constantly expanding outwards, constantly conquering planets full of people, uh, and their warships are uh, in part crewed by human beings who have been uh, basically slaved to the ship's artificial intelligences. Uh, And the main character of the trilogy is a ship uh, who has been destroyed and only one of those bodies is left. And of course, she's out for revenge because, you know, you can't lose with a classic, right? (laughs) Now, uh, in your future, I think one of the things I think that really nails you down from the first page of the first book through the last page of your most recent book is the kind of prose style and the approach you take to the reader. It's very dense so that you present us with a world that's completely understood by its inhabitants but not so understood by us. Yet there are many aspects that are familiar and this made me think of how it would feel, say, were a hunter-gatherer to be dropped into 20th century civilization. On one hand, there'd be lots of stuff they didn't understand, but they would understand eating. You could probably put them in a car, and after they stopped freaking out, they'd figure out what it was. So I think that what interests me is that the way you balance the stuff that's unfamiliar and completely alien to us, not necessarily of alien origin, maybe just from your future, but with the things that are familiar to us to draw us in and yet keep us at a distance at the same time. Talk about creating that prose approach. So I actually uh, almost think of it sort of backwards from that, which is that when uh, today we read uh, Jane Austen, for instance, mm-hmm. there's a lot that we don't understand about what's going on. <laughs> exactly. Uh, unless you've got an edition that has all the footnotes that says, well, this is this, and actually vicars were appointed by local nobles. And you know, uh, and if you don't understand that, uh, you're reading through and you're like, what? So you read uh, that you know, one of the characters has a, a parsonage in his gift and that's really important to one of the characters. And you're like, what does that even mean? This isn't a thing that makes any sense. Uh, But by the time you finish a Jane Austen novel, you understand what that means. She never tells you, 
because she knows what it means and everybody in her world knew what it meant. But there's enough other information there. And uh, in some ways also, when you're writing science fiction, uh, you have problems with exposition. There are a lot of things you have to explain. And historical fiction writers have the same problems. Uh, and so I kind of consciously tried to approach it as though I were writing something that was being translated into English from some other culture's stock of stories, some other culture's literature. So those little clues are there just because everybody else understands the world, but uh, the reader can sort of figure out, just like when you read Jane Austen, you understand that uh, you know this one character can actually make somebody's life better because they are in a position to appoint these particular jobs. Um, and, and that doesn't need to be spelled out, but you can figure it out. So I do actually consciously imitate that particular thing, uh, which isn't a technique. Jane Austen's not trying to tell us about that, but we do. And I kind of feel like, um, I mean, readers are very smart, mm -hmm. right? And so almost always my approach is uh, I'm going to lay things out the best I can and then trust the reader to follow me because the reader's smart. You know, when you were saying translation, I was thinking the other aspect of these books that's really wonderful, it's, it's almost like traveling to a completely foreign country. You get there, you see a bunch of stuff, some of it's familiar, some of it's not, but it's really thrilling to be there. And there's that same thrill in space opera. There's a, one thing, I know this is kind of a dweeby little detail, but I have to ask, in, in any space opera, there's a lot of neologisms, and you will certainly, just by virtue of one of the major aspects of the setup of your world, you, you have, I think, maybe more than most, although they're very easy to penetrate. Um, how do you deal with that on a computer? I mean, do you have to train your computer to not flag this stuff as a grammar or error? I mean, if I, I can imagine looking at your the text of your novel, provenance in word, it would just be one red line from beginning to end. <laughs> Pretty much so. And in fact, that's basically what I have to do. I start writing the draft, and then at a certain point, I get really annoyed with all the little red lines. And then I start <laughs> saying, learn this word, learn this word, learn this word. Uh, actually, that's super important, because mm -hmm. sometimes I will mistype a, a name. And if I'm mistyping a name, but it's all underlined with little red squiggles, I will never see that. But once I say, I settle on the spelling and I say, learn that word, then if I mistype it, I can see it. But yeah, the little red squiggles bug me. Yeah. I would imagine. Uh your worlds, one of the features of your worlds, I think that makes it so compelling to us now in this moment, is your vision of the human future as a, a spectrum of sexuality. This is something we're, com we're coming to understand the import of the spectrum, I think, on a variety of scientific and cultural levels. Many things we used to think were black and white. We no longer think that anymore. So talk about creating your pansexual spectrum of the future and how you decided to lay that out in terms of terminology, in terms of relationships. How much did you wing it when you were writing the book and how much did you think about it in advance? So I winged an awful lot, particularly at the beginning. Mm -hmm. uh, at the beginning, I was very naive about the subject. I said, boy, it would be so fun to write a culture that really didn't care about gender, right? Wouldn't that be awesome? Uh, and uh, I tried writing using you know, he and she and assigning binary genders to the characters. And I didn't like the result because I wasn't producing the effect of a culture that really didn't care about gender, right? Mm -hmm. If nothing else, I was gendering the characters in particular stereotypical ways without meaning to, right? Sure, so uh, eventually I said, well, I'll just, what if I just use the default she in sort of the way that Le Guin used the default he when she wrote The Left Hand of Darkness, right? Mm -hmm. and, uh, and what would that do? And at first it was very disorienting, but the more I did it, the more I liked it. Uh, but as I worked, I became really interested in the ways that people thought about gender, right? Uh, and learned that learned a number of things right? my understanding of of gender was fairly naive mm -hmm. uh and of course in in this culture we assume well obviously you can look at a person and see their gender and it's going to be one of two and there's 
you know, pretty straightforward, right? Up till about uh, fifteen minutes ago, right? Yeah, well, <laughs> well, and it hasn't been straightforward mm-hmm. at all, like right. ever since ever. But our culture lines it up that way, you exactly. know. And you're born, and the first thing everybody wants to know is, is it a boy? Or yeah, is it, a girl? is it a boy or a girl? And now I'm like, well, how could you even know? And why does anybody care? And uh, when my children were very small, I had a really interesting experience. This sort of fed into my wanting to write about gender not mattering, but uh, just in terms of how powerful our cultural expectations are. Mm-hmm. Um, I would take my little baby to the grocery store, like in a little onesie, you know, like you do, mm-hmm. and uh, and people would want to stop and coo at the beautiful little baby. And very often, the person would lean over and open their mouth to speak to my child and then turn to me and say, is it a boy or a girl? Because they couldn't even go, coochie, coochie, coo, aren't you adorable, without knowing whether the baby was a boy or a girl. Wow. It was amazing. And uh, Or I would be in the checkout line, and the checker would be talking and would you know, choose the wrong pronoun mm-hmm. and uh, say of my son, oh, she's really beautiful. And then like somebody with me would say something and they'd realize they'd made a mistake. And the apologies would just be so like this abject, like the checker had just run over my dog or something. And I'm like, he doesn't care. <laughs> Wait, he doesn't even speak English yet. He doesn't know. He's just sitting in the cart. Give him a sticker. He, you know, um, and, and that was really interesting to me. And so when I started listening to uh, the sort of things people said about how they experienced their gender, people who were transgender, people who say, no, I'm, I'm not either gender, right? My gender is somewhere on a, a sliding scale in between. It's nothing. It's something different. It's not what society gives me to choose from, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I thought about just how hard society works to inform everyone just what category they fit into. And... Uh, and I've thought more and more about that and became more and more interested in it as the trilogy went along. So I learned a lot in the process of writing the trilogy. I did not start knowing or thinking any of those things. Wow. Now, one of the things this speaks to, too, is, and I think this is uh, one of the themes of, of provenance, is the power of language to define us and to put us into, a, to, to really control our actions. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, I think language is really powerful. And on top of it, uh, I think this may be self-aggrandizing, but I think narrative is incredibly powerful. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, I feel You're... like narrative is, stories are powerful because we think in stories. Mm-hmm. It's a basic mode of human thought. It's the way we organize how the world works for us and how we choose what actions we're going to take. So the narratives that you have in your sort of inventory of stories, then you walk into a situation and you're going to immediately pull out a narrative frame that's going to make it make sense to you and you're going to react based on that. Um, and those narrative frames push people into particular categories. And those those can have life and death consequences. Uh, the narrative that always casts a black person as a criminal Is- means... <laughs> Somebody, you know, meets a black man and goes, oh, my God, they're dangerous. Well, somebody might end up getting, often does, end up getting killed. And it's not, you know, it's not the person who thinks they're in danger. Right? <laughs> you know? um, and so those narratives are super powerful. The kinds of things, the names that society gives you through those narratives uh, can have life or death consequences for you. Now, uh, having created this really full and interesting universe in a trilogy. I, I love what you did with Providence, which is to give us, a, I mean, a, a, a fun and engaging mystery, uh, a look at child, the relationship between children and their parents, adult children and their parents, which is really a subject that's well undertreated so far as I'm concerned. And so talk about, once you created that base for yourself, how did you decide where else to go? Because this is, I mean, you have done what Star Wars spent about 30 years trying to do. Um, so, yeah, a lot of that, usually once I get a base, mm-hmm. I just kind of feel my way forward. Mm-hmm. I don't necessarily have a grand overarching plan. I know where I want to end up. So I knew that by the end of Provenance, I was going to end up where I ended up, uh, which is good. It's always good when I end up where I intend to. Uh-huh. Um, and I had a few spots along the way, but a lot of it uh, I was figuring out while I was going. But I think as soon as I said, 
that I wanted to think about the idea of vestiges, about the things that are tangible proofs of where someone came from and who they are, and basically a, a proof of inheritance, right? Mm -hmm. uh, that made the family relationships very important because your family is where you come from, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and families, you know, we love our families. <laughs> we do. <laughs> our, you know, and parents love their children. And most parents, certainly all the parents that I've met, uh, want the best for their children. But also all the parents that I've met have their own hang-ups and their own flaws and their own, and there's nobody can push your button like your parents. There's nobody who can make you feel really super insecure in a really profound way like your children. You know, you, you want Absolutely. you want so you want so much for your children, mm -hmm. and yet all those places in your in yourself that are that are maybe less than ideal are going to get stepped on in in funny ways when you're a parent. And so you can mean the best in the world and really mess your kids up bad, right? Not because you're a terrible person, but because that's what being a parent is like, right? <laughs> that, that's a part of the definition. It comes, it comes with the jaw. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, and there are parents out there who aren't particularly well-intentioned, although I, I hope it's a large minority, you know, that it's a tiny little, that the vast sliver. majority of parents really want the best for their kids even when they mm -hmm. mess up profoundly, yeah. Now, uh, we have here, our main character is Ingray. She's, uh, I, I love this, the, the way you design this character in this novel, because we see most of the the story from within her perspective, and she's a, a great heroine. But she is not Sarah Connor. She is not a Star Wars heroine who triumphs in the end. Things turn out well. I can say maybe with us without spoiling too much, but I, she is so completely insecure throughout the book and I think that that's an interesting perspective to take for your main character you must have, you had a lot of fun with that didn't you I did I did I really enjoyed that actually um, partly because I think that's a really common experience mm -hmm. right I think oh sure a lot of us <laughs> probably and and maybe I'm just fooling myself but I feel like most of us walk around thinking oh my gosh I'm gonna fail oh my gosh I'm not really that good oh my gosh what if I make this terrible mistake oh I said that horrible stupid thing I can't believe it I'm gonna be thinking all night about it you know and and <laughs> And yet you're actually doing okay, yeah. right? You're doing okay. And uh, and I ran it when I first ran into uh, somebody talked about imposter syndrome, and I went, oh, that makes perfect sense, mm -hmm. right? Somebody gave that feeling a name, right? Oh, They're absolutely. gonna find out I'm a fraud. I'm not really who they think I am. I'm not. I've been faking it all this time, and and uh, and I think that's actually super common. Uh, and so I kind of wanted to acknowledge that uh, because I do feel like sometimes when you don't see yourself in a story in a particular way, that makes you feel alone in a mm -hmm. way that maybe you don't need to. If you think you're the only person walking around feeling like you're not good enough, um, that is a really difficult experience. If you're walking around feeling, oh, they're gonna find me out, I'm an imposter, oh, wait a minute, everybody walking down the street is feeling that way, that's a very different experience, right? <laughs> right. And so when you never see that in a story, you feel like there's nobody out there, right? Right, right. Yeah, um, and also, I mean, uh, in the trilogy, Breck, is a very different kind of character. Mm -hmm. Breck is absolutely hyper-competent. Mm -hmm. Breck is good at almost everything she does and has absolutely no doubts, even about things maybe she should have some doubts about, <laughs> right? right. Uh, she's just like, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do it well, and it's, I'm going to do it. And then she does, <laughs> right? She's just almost the, the, the traditional science fictional, you know, uh, strong, smart. Perfect. Uh, perfect heroine, yeah. yeah. and. Uh, and so I definitely wanted to do something different with Provenance because a trilogy is a big project, and I and it, I loved writing it, but I was ready to like switch gears in a big way. Uh, and I said, so I can switch gears and also have a character who maybe kind of speaks to what a lot of us are already experiencing, and that kind of character who maybe could stand to star in a in a story and be the hero. I. I mission accomplished. I, one of the things that it made me think too was that on one hand we have people who feel like they're imposters and 
you're pretending to be something and maybe you aren't. But also I, the thought that came to my mind while I was reading this book was the famous Kurt Vonnegut quote, be careful who you pretend to be because that is who you will become. That's exactly right. That's <laughs> exactly that, that right. Flip, that's the flip side of this thinking. And, and what will happen sometimes you will not realize who you're pretending to be. Yes, a fake <laughs> and, it till you make it, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And that's kind of what Ingray does. She mm-hmm. fakes it. And and that's part of her development as a character, yeah. Well, one of the things, so you were talking earlier about vestiges, which is a really, it's a key concept in this book. And I love this idea. So take us a little bit further into that. You you wanted to make this the center of the book, and, and, and it is. So how did you create this as... I, the way it works within the culture of the Huey? Am I saying that I right? I say Huey, yes. Huey, okay. So. Um, so I actually started wanting to write about one of my favorite space opera tropes, which is the ancient alien artifact, right? And the archaeological dig on oh, the planet, right? I yeah. was like, that would be awesome. I love that. Uh, and so I started to read about archaeology. Mm-hmm. As I said to my, I've, I've done, actually, uh, it was a lot of fun. I volunteered on an archaeological dig at one point. So oh, I had a little really? hands-on experience. And, and I said, but I'll read some more so that when I can write about it, I know what I'm talking about. And I started to uh, get really interested in the history of archaeology because uh, people have been digging old stuff up, like, since there was old stuff to dig up, right? <laughs> Absolutely. And making up stories or uh-huh. wondering what it was or, you know, trying to identify it and fit it into their own histories. Um, but archaeology, the way that we think of it as, like, an academic discipline that maybe governments even fund and all this is is rooted in a particular time and culture. Mm-hmm. And uh, I said, well, let me look at that. And... I ended up getting sort of drawn into looking at museums, which are very closely associated. As Indiana Jones says, Mm -hmm. what does he always say? That belongs in a museum, right? (laughs) Right. Um, And everybody laughs when he says it, but you don't laugh because you don't think it's true, right? Why why does it belong in a museum? What's the purpose of the museum in that equation, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And most archaeologists wouldn't say that today for various reasons, but that's a pop, you know, that makes sense. Uh, and so then I got interested in the history of museums, and that led me into uh, the question of things like antiquity smuggling and art fraud and forgeries, and it was really a, a fun bunch of reading. And so by the time I was done with that that path, um, I became really interested in the way that uh, it seems to me part of what museums are about, right, particularly like big civic museums, uh, the British Museum, the Met in New York, Uh, are very much about laying claim to a particular status and inheritance, right? So if you go into the British Museum, what you see is uh, you walk in and there's all the Egyptian and Greek and Roman stuff. Mm-hmm. That's like, you walk right in and there it is. Right, yeah. Why Why do they have all that in London, right? Why is that important in London? Well, it's important because the British Empire is the inheritor of Western civilization. And the path of that inheritance comes through the Greeks and the Romans to the British, who, of course, are the pinnacle of civilized society. And all those artifacts in the British Museum are the proofs of that. Wow, right. that's an interesting. Those vision. are there. Yes. Those are the. Those uh-huh. are the. You know, I got this silver from my grandmother. I'm a member of this family. That's, and in my opinion, uh, the Elgin marbles will never go back to Greece until the British have a different narrative about who they are, because the Elgin marbles are a certification of their having inherited civilization from the Greeks. Wow. Now you have your own British museum in. In this book, the System Larium, I, I, I think that uh, for me, the way that you play out the forgery aspect of the vestiges is really great, and, and you have a lot of fun with this book too. This book is really fun. There's a good sense of humor in here. It's a bit of a crime caper novel, and I, I so talk about just creating uh, this the futuristic version of uh, forgery, I think. That, yeah, I almost didn't have to do very much. Uh-huh. Um, because once I started reading about forgery and uh, fraud, uh-huh. it was fascinating. It was absolutely fascinating. Like in the, in the way that a good mystery novel is or a good crime caper is. Uh, and in fact, there was one particular, and it's a spoiler, so I probably shouldn't mention it in the interview. There was one particular 
real honest to goodness uh, art theft mm -hmm. uh, that when I read it, I said, oh, that has to go into the story. <laughs> and I ended up twisting it around some. Uh, and uh, maybe at some point when the book's been out a while, I'll blog and direct a link to it. Uh, but I didn't have to change a lot because that whole world is just so completely outlandish. Uh, the things that, that forgers will do. You know, it's funny because uh, it strikes me that um, crime and art and forgery are one of those things that run eternal through human civilization. I think they do. I, I think mean, they you know. do. Although, actually, uh, and this may be a tangent, uh, one of the texts that I read while I was pursuing the research argued mm -hmm. that uh, you don't get forgery and fraud and such unless you have a culture that is into art collection and that this particular author argued, I'm not sure if I agree with him or not, uh, that you only get art collecting the way that we think about it in particular kinds of societies. And so he talked about uh, art collection in the Greek and Roman world mm -hmm. and how, for instance, the Romans couldn't have cared less about art until a particular point. And then all of a sudden they were all about, was this painting by a thing? Uh, and, uh, and the way that, uh, you know, a painting is important because a particular person painted it, not because of the art. Somebody will say, oh, well, this is a brilliant painting, and that's why it's important. But as soon as Rembrandt didn't touch it, it's not, it's not, not less worth anything. Yeah. <laughs> Bummer. Like, isn't why? that interesting, right? Why is and I was that? just, yeah. I was completely fascinated by that. And all the, the kinds of things where people would say, uh, you know, countries would start to make, uh, make it illegal to bring certain works of art away from the country. Like Egypt has a real problem with that mm -hmm. um, and have laws about what you can take out of the country and can't and people are stealing it. And that's absolutely fascinating. Like why, why Egyptian stuff, right? Um, or, and now uh, Middle Eastern stuff, the stuff mm -hmm. from the ancient Near East that, you know, that Hobby Lobby was buying. And <laughs> by the time that broke, I was like, I'm not surprised and I know why they were buying it, right? Um, but uh, it's only particular things, right? And it's mm -hmm. just, it's just amazing. It's a, it's a, it's just nutty. And the people who do paintings, like I read uh, an entire book by a guy who, he was like, oh yeah, what you do is you pick a picture that, you pick an artist who, uh, sells respectably, but that uh, who isn't like totally hot. And then you study their work and you paint not things that everybody wants and knows exists. You don't paint copies of things people know about and you don't paint uh, things that, are, that somebody mentioned that they might have painted. You paint something that might plausibly have been painted by that person and just stuck in somebody's attic. And then you do a bunch of them, and then you take them around by hand to all the auction houses in New York, right? You walk in, you go, oh, I found this in the garage. And then you go over to London, and you take a few of them in, and you, you know. And I was like. <laughs> you're you're well-studied in art, I, Right. I was like, this was amazing. And wow. this, this, one, this one guy had made mm -hmm. a lifelong career out of it. Set himself up, you know, doing, <laughs> he wanted to do his own art. He didn't do well doing his own art, but he discovered he could forge things super well. <laughs> Well, there you go. That's a career path. Maybe not one I'm going to recommend to my children. Well, I love no. very much, but no, but it was knows? fascinating. Yeah. And this particular guy was very engaging, mm -hmm. right? It, wow. Yeah. Now, um, you have an interesting uh, aspect of your civilization in that the uh, our main character, M. Gray, she was brought up. She, she was born in a public crash, and she was taken up and adopted by Natano. So talk about the way the, the prolocutors and the way that you create these kind of uh, families by some kind of choice. Yeah, by some kind of choice. Um, I kind of, uh, and I'm not sure why, although it may have been a subconscious feeding into the, the thematic things that were already developing when I was setting up the book, uh, I wanted a society that uh, relied very heavily on adoption and fosterage, mm -hmm. um, which looks very, I mean, we do adopt in mm -hmm. our society. My mother was adopted, which also probably fed into my interest in it. Mm -hmm. um, but there have been societies and possibly still are that really uh, fosterage and adoption is just an important part of it. You'll, you know, trade kids off or send a kid out to make a link with another family. And, and that's an important way of linking different families together. I said, why don't I do that? That would be kind of fun, uh, almost kind of at random. Uh, and I also wanted, uh, I wanted to set a story in a democracy. Mm -hmm. uh, I'd done the Galactic Empire, and you know, 
I love a galactic empire as much as the next girl because they're kind of awesome, right? Yeah. Um, but we don't live in a galactic empire, and uh, every now and then somebody will say, "What is it with all these empires? Is there are there no like republics or democracies in the future?" I'm like, you know, that's a good question. <laughs> Um, but they have so many moving pieces. It's much easier to just deal with an emperor, right? Sure. Um, but I said I want to I wanna have a political system that relies on people voting, right? You vote your officials in. Uh, and so uh, I said, well, all right, so I'll set it up that you've got a, a sort of a small committee at the head. You've got your, your prolocutors who are, you know, the, the top level of your representatives, and you have your sort of uh, lower level of representatives that people vote directly for and all this, and I set all that up. Uh, and then I said, now I'll make my family be someone who she runs for office. She's a, she's a representative in the assembly and, uh, and wants to be prolocutor, and, uh, and I'll make her her adversary. <laughs> The person who defeated her in the last prolocutorial election, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and I just those I just set up like almost at random. Uh, oftentimes I like to just sort of throw things in a box at the beginning, and then <laughs> I have that to sort of build off of as I go. So I just said, all right, I'll do that. I got a, a, a an elective government here, so that'll be cool. And yeah, so that I just sort of threw things in a box and started from there. Yeah. Um, we. The family dynamic is really interesting. Most of it consists uh, of Ingrid and, and the, the brothers. The brother. <laughs> the older brother, Didak. He is such a great character. You have a lot of fun with him. I did have a lot of fun with him, yeah. And I was really enjoying, too, the the relationship between them. Mm -hmm. Because yeah. in the way of your relationship, not everybody has brothers like that. <laughs> but, you know, very often with your siblings, uh, sometimes you're, you know, fighting and fighting, and then something happens, and you're like, no, we're we're together, right? We're in right. the same family. No, I I, I don't want to hurt you. I want to be your ally. But then as soon as you, it's clear, it's like, no, it's Gloves my extra dessert, right? You know, or whatever yeah. it is. Um, their rivalry is particularly bitter, right? And and Danak is not a particularly nice person. Um, but I wanted to get that kind of uh, that kind of ambivalence that sometimes we have toward our siblings, where we do love our brothers and sisters, but we also maybe kind of sometimes don't like them very much. Right? There's a bit of competition going on there. Yeah. Now, uh, in this world you set up, we, we meet some really wonderful aliens, the, the Gek. I, I love the Gek, and, and I think this, uh, you do a great job of creating alien aliens. Thank you very much. Oh, they do. You. They are not just like people with wearing prosthetic masks. They are actually seem quite alien and weird. Uh, talk about creating the Gek and their very peculiar civilization and the way they talk. I love the translated way they talk. I like oh, everything about them. Oh, I, you know, <laughs> I loved the Gek ambassador was so fun to write. Oh, she was so much fun hoot. to write. Yeah, I love her. Yeah. Um, the the writing, the sort of translated dialogue, mm -hmm. was actually, it's I guess an amplification of a thing I feel like I learned from C.J. Cherry. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've read her Foreigner books, uh, which I absolutely them, yeah. adore. Uh, but I love the way in those books you can tell when people are either speaking Mosfe, which is basically English, or they're speaking Ragi, which is the the Atevi language. There are several Atevi languages, but that's mm -hmm. the one that the characters speak. Um, you can often tell when the characters are speaking one language and when they're speaking another language right. without Cherry telling you. Uh -huh. Because it's just in the diction and the way the sentences are structured. Exactly. And I've been fascinated by that for a long time. Uh, and it's a little more blatant with uh, the Gek Ambassador. Mm -hmm. uh, and I didn't want her to talk with broken English, mm -hmm. you know, but I wanted it to be clear that it was kind of awkward and sort of some of the word choices weren't what a native speaker would choose. Uh, it's being translated. It's just a little bit clunky. Um, and so I had a lot of fun doing that. And of course, she herself is just, she doesn't understand humans. <laughs> she doesn't understand humans at all. She understands the kind of humans who live with the Gek who are their own kind of strange. And, but she doesn't understand anything about humans, but she thinks she does, and she's gonna, you know, come in and 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 tell everybody how it's supposed to be, right? And she was just so much fun. Uh, you know, it also strikes me too that the uh, one of the things that by creating such a, a wonderful 
uh, universe the way you've created in your first three books. You leave lots of places for the readers to fill in. And so there's, I, I can't wait to see what's going to happen with the AIs. I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that you're, you're, you're thinking you're going to deal with that in the future. But in this book, as I was reading this book, I, I was looking at, you know, some of the, the mechs. So, and I'm thinking, wait, wait. We don't know what the hell is making those things talk. And so the the very both ambiguous way you created the universe and the complexity of that universe and also the reader's own intuitions about how these things work out in science fiction. You're right. Readers are really smart. Readers and that's are smart. Important. They supply a lot. There's, oh, there are yes. lots of things you don't have to tell them if you just give an outline. Yeah. The reader can fill in a lot of things for you. They can make connections. Yeah. So, but I, let's get back to the mechs. You have the, they're, they're very unmechanical often and I love that kind of greasy monster-like feeling that you get going with them. Are, are you afraid of spiders? Yes. Oh. Uh, uh, not as badly. I have a friend, actually, who recently uh, we were playing Dungeons & Dragons. Actually, mm -hmm. we are playing Pathfinder. And uh, the, the, uh, the GM said, oh, you've walked into the room and there's a giant spider. And the GM, she put a, the, the, the top of a, of a dice box onto the, onto the mat as the <laughs> giant spider. And a friend of mine who was playing had to get up and leave the room. She's like, why did you put that there? Why did you put that there? Oh, it's a spider. And I'm like, it's a little square piece of plastic. It doesn't even have a picture of a spider on it. Um, so I'm not that bad. Oh, um, we, we, we defeated the giant spider. Um, but, uh, but I would be weirded out by a giant spider. Yes, and I, I think spiders do important things in the world, and I'm mm -hmm. glad they exist. They eat other bugs that I like even less than spiders, but uh, I would prefer it if they stayed outside my house. Yes, yeah, me too. I actually, yeah. I was just uh, looking at the bite that one left me oh. about a while back. I was uh, hoping that it, my flesh wouldn't start to rot away all yeah. a violin spider. It, apparently that's not happening, lucky me. That's good, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I think, too, that... The kind of uh, the the way you plot this book is really, really amazing. I mean, we were talking about narrative and the power of narrative, and I think you really understand it well because for the first part of the book, it, it's it's fun and we, we keep reading, but all of a sudden we find ourselves at a point where we're just glued to all the threads that you've been setting up and some of which we've been aware of and we're thinking okay this is going to pay off when it does start to pay off it pays off in spades in you know this is cash this in just before the the big financial blowout uh, so talk about uh do you discover that plot that plot felicity or does it uh happen uh by virtue of uh rewriting ten thousand times mostly i discovered as i go mm -hmm. And sometimes I'll have to go back and rewrite to fix things. But uh, I basically throw a lot of threads on the page that seem like they'll... Sometimes I know where they're headed. Sometimes I'm like, well, that thing is going to end up in later in the book. We're going to have this big scene, and it's going to happen because of this thing I'm laying in. But sometimes it's just I've thrown a bunch of stuff in the, those beginnings, or I'll be in the middle of a scene and go, oh, that's cool. Mm -hmm. That's so cool that I need to carry that through, and then that'll affect what happens later on. And then I ha on the rewrites, I have to go back and make sure that it's graceful, that it doesn't just, you know, clunk onto the page. Yeah. Now, uh, it strikes me, too, that as we read this book set in the far future, we're here in our present, and I think that you do a great job of transporting us to this world in a way that lets us experience our own world at the same time. So talk about that kind of parallax effect of reading science fiction, your book, and science fiction in general, where you're sitting there you know, in your chair in 2017, which to me already is the future. I'm old enough that I, this is, I expected us to have, you know, passed the moon gate on, ja on, on past Jupiter at this point in time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, when I, I, I was sure we'd have a city on the moon by the time <laughs> I was this age, right? Yeah. Um, sadly, we don't. Mm, uh, but I do feel like um, we can really only write from where we are. Mm -hmm. And in a lot of ways, we're writing about the future or about some fantastical vision of the future. Uh, but in the end, we're always writing about where we are right now. Right. Um, and the reader is always going to read from where they are. So a reader now is going to read that book uh, in the light of things that have occurred recently. Um, and so uh, 
very often, for instance, a reader will read a book and say, oh, obviously she was responding to X. Mm -hmm. Well, I wasn't responding to X, but to them it's something that looms large in their experience, and so it seems obvious. So uh, there's almost no way to not read a thing and see it as a comment on what's going on around you. Um, or when you have the information, like you read something from the 60s and you know enough about the 60s to say, oh, this is a very 60s kind of novel, right? This right. is very clearly influenced by the things that were going on then. Um, so I'm not sure it would be possible to write a science fiction novel that was genuinely not about the time that it was being written, right? Well, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Well, uh, two, um, I, as a just reading this book in terms of the plot, the mystery aspects were really, really fun. Every time I came upon that, I just thought, this is so great to, that she can set up this whole world and then give us a really personal vision. And that's an interesting aspect. You really I talk about like keeping yourself focused on Ingre and her relationships and those characters. That's what makes this book so much fun and so kind of intense. That was such a great vision of this pansexual future. Yeah, that's, that's something that uh, I tend to kind of... Uh, I often enjoy reading books that are, have just sprawling like four million characters and you go from this person and then the next chapter it's another character and then the next chapter it's another character and you get this huge panoramic view and you see all these people. Um, when I write, I much prefer to stick with one person mm -hmm. um, and I feel like that lets me, first of all, get that character really, really down on the page, get that point of view really, really set. Uh, but it also... Um, gives me a kind of widescreen that's harder to get, I think, with that, the, the one version of widescreen where you, you see a bunch of different characters. Mm -hmm. uh, there's another kind of widescreen where you can contrast. Uh, all of us, we're living our own little personal lives. All the things that are going on in the world around us are affecting us, and we're part of them, but we don't necessarily see it. Um, and I feel like you can show that when you delve really down hard into one character and then make the background very true and it gives us kind of almost sort of dimensionality, a sort of perspective to that widescreen uh, that I really like doing and so I just kind of do it because I think it's fun. Now, uh, do you know where you're going to go in the future in this universe? Are you going to stay in this universe? Um, in this universe, I'm not 100% sure where I'm going next, but I will go somewhere. Mm -hmm. uh, I put a lot of construction work into this universe. <laughs> yeah. um, so I want to take advantage of that as much as possible. And also, uh, working in a new universe would mean a lot of new construction, mm -hmm. which uh, I would certainly be happy to do if that if that idea seized me at some point. Uh, but for the moment, uh, this universe is so big that I can tell almost any kind of story mm. and, and not leave this universe. So I'll probably be in this universe for a while, but I'm not 100% sure exactly what direction I'm going in with it yet. The, this, these books were already optioned for TV, am I mistaken? Yes, yes. Now, the, how far along is that? I mean, this is a, a prime time for that to get like actual... Wouldn't that be awesome? Yeah, that's, that's still kind of hanging there. That's still hanging there. It's, you know, with TV options, a lot of what, oh, yeah. to, you know, somebody options and then you wait and then maybe they renew the option and maybe they don't. And if they don't, well, then maybe somebody else buys the option and maybe they renew it every few years and maybe something happens <laughs> and maybe it doesn't. I was talking to another writer who's had this happen and I said, yeah, you know, they, they bought the option and they renewed it and they renewed it. And I don't know. He's like, yeah, don't worry about it. He said, I've had so many of these. It, they just buy the option and nothing's ever happened. Right. <laughs> Um, so, uh, so I guess it's just one of those wait and see. I, I tell my agent, you know, just tell me if something happens. Otherwise, I'm just pretending it's not there. <laughs> yeah, the analogy I heard was you drive up to the California border, you throw, throw it over the border, get the money, go back and be Yep, exactly. And start yeah, your next book. The person I was talking to was like, it's basically free money as long as they renew the option. Right? <laughs> um, how detailed do you... Do you make back notes on your technology so that you, I mean, do you have a Bible that you can refer to so that you know where you've been? Do you have a timeline, history, spreadsheets? So I have, my very first document was a spreadsheet mm -hmm. uh, that had a list of names of gods and names of places and uh, the names of the emanations and what they meant. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was my whole that was my entire reference document. Uh, it was 
wholly insufficient <laughs> when I got to the second volume of the trilogy. Uh, mm-hmm. It got me through the first, through the first book, and much of the stuff I was just sort of keeping in post-it notes on the wall or in the back of my head. Uh, and then I started the second book, and I realized I didn't know who was on the space station, who was on the ship, where was the place, how much time had elapsed between this one thing and another. So I actually, uh, I spent some, uh, I don't know if you've ever heard, ever heard the term cat vacuuming. Uh, no, I haven't, but it's, I like it already. It's a, it's a writer term. So mm-hmm. like when you, uh, because we all, we love to write because, mm-hmm. and that's why we write. But there's a thing that happens when you sit down to write and you're so, you become very easily distracted. Like, oh, there's laundry to do. Oh, oh the cl- kitchen floor is, dr- I have to vacuum the cat. The cat needs vacuuming right now. I can't write. I have all these things to do. And so cat vacuuming is the thing you do to avoid writing, right? It's In our house, it's cleaning the eyelets of the iron with a Q-tip. Right. That Exactly that kind of thing, yes. And so uh, it, I ended up looking for a way to keep track. It became a cat vacuuming project. Uh, I found a thing called TiddlyWiki, mm-hmm. which is a little personal wiki that works like Wikipedia. And you just uh, you can edit it with your web browser. And, uh, and you can also spend a lot of time making it very pretty, making the colors match up and putting images in and making all these links and entering all the stuff from, that, from the first novel. You can spend a week or two on that and not do any writing at all. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> so uh, I update that very sporadically, but I do have that. But for the most part, I use the traditional post-it notes on the wall method. Okay, now yeah. is that TiddlyWiki on the web? Yes, if you Google TiddlyWiki, it's like TiddlyWinks. No, right? I mean your. Oh tiddly no, wiki. it is not. My oh. TiddlyWiki is not on the web. In fact, I kind of teased some of my readers. I took a screenshot of part of the wiki, and I said, "Oh, this is what I've been working on." And everybody's like, "Oh, can we look at it?" And I'm like, "No, it's full of spoilers and information I don't want anybody to have." Yeah, I guess, I guess so. Yeah. Now, um. How much of the technology that you create in your books do you just like uh, create via hand waving and how much do you uh, create via actually like reading and trying to understand what science is, ta- is doing? It's, it would be hard to say the proportion, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, very, if I come to a plot thing and I need, like the ships, I need to get from one place to the other very quickly the whole point of a space opera is those huge distances. It's completely unrealistic. I'm just going to pick my favorite, you know, convention, right? Mm-hmm. I need some way. I'm just going to go through the catalog of science fictional tropes. Oh, hyperspace gates. Okay. All right. Very good. The gates. Yeah. Um, and uh, sometimes I joke and I call it, uh, I order things from sufficiently advanced technologies. They provide me with a lot of, <laughs> a lot of my equipment for my stories. It's the unlucky Acme yes. tool chest. Yep. And uh, they send me they send me a Christmas card every year. I buy so much from them. Uh, but sometimes I try, for the most part, to get my basic science right. So if I'm gonna do something, sometimes I mess it up. If I'm gonna do something with biology, if I'm gonna do something with basic physics, uh, falling off a bridge, uh, I try and get that right. Mm-hmm. I actually got a detail of that wrong. Actually, it was a little embarrassing. Um, it was a tiny little detail, but still, uh, firing a gun in a vacuum, mm-hmm. right? I'll, I'll go out and do the research, uh, in ancillary sword when the gravity suddenly gets turned off. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went to, a, a writer who sadly he died within the past year or two, Dr. Philip Caldon, who's a physics instructor. And I emailed him and I said, Phil, help me. <laughs> I have this scene. Is my physics right? And we talked about it. Um, so, uh, so I do, when I need a thing for the plot, then mm-hmm. I say to myself, how realistic do I need to be? Can I just order it from sufficiently advanced technologies? <laughs> or do I have to think about how the physics of it is going to work? And then I'll go and do my reading. And so and with ancillaries, ancillaries, once again, that's not a realistic technology. But I did spend a lot of time reading about uh, neurology and about neurological issues uh, concerning identity, for mm-hmm. instance, which are many and very creepy. Uh, it's kind of and alarming. Fascinating. Though. Absolutely fascinating. It's kind of alarming how we're just one stroke from thinking that we don't exist. Yes, uh, that's... Uh... It's super weird. We, I, I just uh, spoke with Robert Wright about the, the truth, uh, why Buddhism is true, and that gets into a lot of that. And to a certain extent, it's, it is rather terrorizing. Um, you know, the, uh, the way that these books uh, interlace, this book 
fits into the other one is really wonderful. And so talk about that kind of creating that kind of, uh, I guess, interwoven feel so that it all feels of a cloth. Did you have, do you go back and language match, pattern match, grammar match so that it feels right? No, not really. Um, for the trilogy, of course, all I did, all I did, was uh, <laughs> there's no all I did with it with regards to four published novels. <laughs> no, there isn't. Actually, that's a, that's a huge amount of work. Um, for Breck, I just made sure I could hear her. Mm-hmm. That's a. I don't know how to explain that. No, that thing. makes perfect sense. But if if I can hear a character's voice, then I can get them on the page. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, when I would come back to the next volume or come back to a writing session, I would just have to be like, okay, where's, where's her voice, right? And mm-hmm. so once I had that, it was very simple. Uh, and that, of course, she is a, a unifying element across the entire trilogy. Uh, coming to the fourth book, um, I did, I spent some time trying to think how, uh, where it was located in terms of the trilogy so that then I could sort of... Uh, sort of tie it in so almost I almost sort of like ran some construction off of the trilogy and said okay here's where I'll build off of you right? built a platform off the yeah and, and then started building from there exactly and so but that did mean deciding uh deciding where I was going to put it uh it also affected the plot because of course where it's located in terms of the trilogy means that the Gek ambassador is available to come through. Sure. Uh, and so in some ways that was part of what I threw in the box. Mm. One question. How did you determine the differing tones of the two works? Oh, that's... Um, to some extent, uh, I didn't settle on, uh, on the tone of provenance right away. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when I began to write it, I was like, you know what? I just, I want this to be light. I want to crack some jokes. I want this to be, you know, a, a pleasant experience. Not that, I mean, you want, you want readers to enjoy your work. I don't think there's a single writer who sits down and says, I don't want to entertain my readers. I don't think that happens. Um, but there is a sort of a different quality to provenance. I wanted it to be not quite so intense, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and then as soon as I made that decision, that really freed me up to just be kind of goofy in places, right? Well, it, what it allowed you to do was reapply your intensity in a lighter-hearted manner. I, I'll take that. I'll take that. Yeah. The new novel by Anne Leckie is Provenance. Thank you for joining me, Anne. Thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.